because the whole purpose of this dialogue is to bring people together, not in a pro forma or for show way, but in a genuine, meaningful, deeply relevant conversation. I think that's what happened five years ago, and I think it happened even more this time. Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the Windsor Law School. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And uh, this week, uh, we have a long-anticipated episode about our wonderful dialogue Dialogue event, event. which happened October 11th through 13th, so just a few weeks ago here at the University of Windsor Law School. They very graciously hosted people from all across the country. Yep. We had people flying in from all across Canada for this. Yes. We had SRLs, of course, and we had lawyers, judges. We had A to J access to justice advocates. We had people from... Uh, the government and public legal education organizations, legal aid offices, amazing, amazing array of people who all came together to want to talk about access to justice and self-represented litigants. It really was uh, a wonderful few days. I mean, it was exhausting for all of us here at the NSRLP. We put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this event, but I I think we're pleased with how it went off. And we've got lots and lots of things to talk about after these two days of discussions. We had uh, large discussions with the entire group and then we had small group discussions. And we have an event report, which we are working on. So for those of you who were not part of this, you will be able to read about what happened. And hopefully you also followed on a little bit on social media. We had a Facebook Live event going on, which is which is still accessible. I yeah, think. absolutely. Yes. As are all of the, the tweets. Um, so if you go on our uh, Twitter page, uh, you can find those. We use some hashtags. The main one was hashtag SRL Dialogue. So you can find all of the tweets related to the event using that hashtag. And the Facebook page for the Facebook Live videos. Yes, absolutely. Go check those out. They're really wonderful. Mm. But what we also wanted to get out of this event was a podcast episode, of course. Yeah. Yes. So we decided uh, we wanted to hear from as many people at this event as possible. We got some people during the event, and then we also got a few more people to send in some clips in the days after the event. And we asked everybody the same question, which is, what is one practical step we can take to improve access to justice in a real way? And And they had one minute. And they had one minute or roughly one minute. We have some people who are a little less than a minute and some people who maybe are a little bit longer, but we got some fabulous responses. Yeah. Yeah. And and an incredibly diverse group of responses. And the people who are part of this podcast that you're about to listen to include self-represented litigants and they include people who work inside the justice system. So you've got a whole range of different views and takes and experiences being expressed, which is exactly what the dialogue event is about. Absolutely. So we have strung all of these different clips together and we've tried to kind of group them in kind of thematic ways that make sense. And we have coerced (laughs) our event facilitator. Asked. Asked, asked. Although I think he has a hard time saying no. It's a little easier when he's my husband. That's Um, right. (laughs) So Bernie Mayer was our facilitator along with Dana for the event, facilitated the large groups. We had others who helped us facilitate the small group. And so we asked Bernie 
uh, to give us his kind of, if you like, bird's eye view from the facilitator's position um, on what he heard in these clips. Now, obviously, there was a lot more in-depth conversation in those plenary sessions that we hope we will capture in the event report. But I think that if you listen to the next 20 minutes, you will get a pretty good sense of some of the issues that animated people and some of the things that we're still struggling to deal with. Let's get self-represented litigants a seat at the access to justice table and in a meaningful way so that their plight, their frustrations, their challenges can be heard and so that they can be a meaningful part of how the deliberations go forward. I think getting other people to speak on their behalf is not as effective. And evidence of this is how rich the dialogues were at the recent SRL dialogues that took place in the University of Windsor. The narrative, the dynamic was so much, much better. Thank you. This is Dom Bautista, Amici Curie Friendship Society in Vancouver. What Dom said really nailed a couple of really important things on the, on the head. One was that it's not just about a for-show participation of the public, and in this case, particularly the self-represented public. It is what is really genuine and meaningful participation, where self-represented litigants are seen not as somebody who ought to be on the table so that they will feel included, but where we see that their addition to the discussion makes it a much better discussion, makes it much richer, makes it much more fruitful. It seems to me that professional organizations and uh, governmental agencies like to talk to themselves a lot. That's who they're the most comfortable with. And yet they miss out the very insights and the challenges and the real emotional foundation of, of people's experience that has to be brought into good policy making. And so what Don laid out is really at the heart of what we were trying to do because the whole purpose of this dialogue is to bring people together, not in a pro forma or for show way, but in a genuine, meaningful, deeply relevant conversation. I think that's what happened five years ago, and I think it happened even more this time. Hello, my name's Denise Berry, and I'm a lawyer, so I do come from that perspective. So I've been asked to talk about one change. There are three changes I can think of, and then I'll talk about one. We all need to change. Self-represented litigants need to change. Judges and lawyers all need to change to make this system improved. Self-represented litigants need to learn how to present the evidence to the judge that that judge needs to hear in accordance with the, the law. Judges need to hear differently. They need to learn how to hear information presented in a way that doesn't include archaic French and legal Latin. And lawyers need to learn that there are different ways of practicing law that, you know, in addition to providing a profit center, also 
support self-represented litigants. It can work. It means getting satisfaction from the practice in, in a different way, but an equally legitimate and profitable way. That change in perception needs to start early on, before lawyers are, young lawyers are convinced that there is only one way to practice. So I think it starts in the law schools. Regrettably, I don't think you can just go to law school and, and jump out and be, an, uh, be a, a coach because you um, basically have to get beat up a little bit in court first to find out how, it's, how it goes. But somebody said, somebody I met yesterday said, you don't get to be a good cook by reading the cookbook. You have to get out there and do it and find out where the problems are and then transpose that information to someone who doesn't have that legal background. My name is Anthony Morgan. I am a lawyer working as a community development officer at the City of Toronto in their Confronting Anti-Black Racism Unit. Now, for the question of what is a practical change that would make a real difference in access to justice, I think one real practical change would be making sure that for-profit or commercial legal databases were available at all local libraries. I also think that in addition to that, to support that practical change would be training librarians in our municipal library services branches so that they would be comfortable and relatively familiar with uh, conducting legal research. I'm Joel Miller from the Family Law Coach. My suggestion is that we adopt and adapt the Oregon informal domestic relations court process, which is a family court, a two-hour family court trial without uh, any rules of evidence, without any rules of procedure, in which you have an, uh, an active judge. Uh, the only parties participate are the two parties themselves. There are no witnesses. You only get into it if you both opt into the system. You can ask the judge to ask the other side certain questions, but basically it's an opportunity to tell your story with whatever evidence you want to show the judge. You leave it to the judge to determine the weight and significance. Uh, at the end of the two hours, the judge gives you a decision. You can use lawyers or not, and most people don't use lawyers, but there's been a huge growth of unbundled services provided for people who are going to be acting for themselves there. To me, if we had that, uh, self-represented litigants would be able to go through the family court system, tell their story, and have a huge degree of satisfaction, which is their experience. What I really like about these three uh, statements is they present three different dimensions of the kinds of changes that we need to have if, if we're, we're going to really see some profound differences in what self-represented uh, litigants uh, and, and the general public experience when they go to court. One, the, Denise Berry's idea or, or concept is that we have to change how people think and the skills they have and the attitudes they have. And she includes all of the different uh, players in the system. The question that her, her, her suggestions beg is, well, how do we get those changes to happen? What support do we give to self-represented litigants so they can understand how to present their ideas uh, and their case in language that the judges can understand? How do lawyers change their perception of what their role is and what they can do to be effective? Uh, and how do judges begin to hear differently what they're being presented? So she's talking about the attitudinal side of it. Anthony Morgan's suggestion is a really interesting one because it's about how do we actually provide more accessible information to self-represented litigants totally outside the framework of the court. It says that the solutions to this are, are not going to just be court-based. And then Joe Miller 
pre presents a model of what courts can do of a whole different program that would work uh, in Ontario or not um, would, would remain to be seen. But, but in essence, if you take these three together, one says, let's look at what kind of community supports people can have. The other says, how can we help people change their understanding? And the third says, what kind of programmatic changes can courts take? We're going to need all those three kinds of things to happen if we're really going to see the kind of cultural change that's ultimately going to make a difference in providing genuine access to justice. My name is Jeff Rose Martland. I'm a self-represented litigant from Newfoundland, and I wish that judges and lawyers would stop telling me that I need a lawyer because I wouldn't be representing myself if I could get a lawyer. And I've noticed that, especially when this has been said to me in court, it occurred to me that judges would never say to a regular lawyer, you should go get a QC to represent your client. So it, while I'm sure the intentions are well met, it is incredibly frustrating for an SRL who's been fighting to get a lawyer to be told they need one. Hi, my name is Jana Sarasivic. I'm a self-represented litigant. And one of the ideas that I thought we haven't looked at yet is um, there's a huge resource of self-represented litigants who have a lot of knowledge and would like to help provide information to other self-represented litigants um, on an informal and volunteer basis. And I thought it would be really a good idea for um, the Windsor Law School to contact the McKenzie program in the UK, which trains volunteers to provide information and support to people who have to represent themselves and they could perhaps modify that program and bring it here to Canada so that we can be trained, uh, the volunteers that are here, on how to do it properly uh, and perhaps even make it an online program that we can access from all across Canada because there are such programs available and uh, therefore we will be better informed and will be able to better help uh, on a volunteer basis. So that's something I'm putting out there. Kenneth SRL to create and administer, jointly by the NSRLP organization in Windsor and branches of the NSRLP organization in participating provinces, a many-to-many all-group mentoring program where former SRLs who succeeded in advancing their cases partly or entirely mentor potential SRLs to be and current SRLs grouped by type of legal matter and where also guest mentors like guest speakers who are trained to act as case strategists, legal procedures and forms coaches, counselors for emotion management and income assistance options advisors work with the mentees on demand. In this segment, we hear the voices of self-represented litigants themselves. And what they're saying is, don't talk down to us, don't condescend to us. Instead, empower us to help ourselves, uh, which is in one way or another a theme we've heard in many ways. I mean, just Rose Martland's discussion uh, is something I think the project has heard from many places, how many people are told they need to go get a lawyer as if they hadn't been trying, they hadn't been working on doing it, and they were too somehow too stupid to understand for themselves that they need one. And he really puts the lie to that attitude and uh, very much says that, please grant us the respect that we, we do understand the situation we're facing. And then Yana and Kenneth, they come with very specific and very overlapping ideas, really, about how self-reps could be empowered 
to really help each other. As many other uh, people are find the system they work with isn't always very friendly or helpful to them, have found, such as families of people who have mental illness or, um, or in special education, where the families have found what we really need to do is start helping each other. And that's exactly what, what these people are saying. We'd love the system to be different. We'd love to be able to have the legal representation we want, but we don't. We, we don't have that system. And so respect us enough to understand we get it and also help us help uh, each other because that's one of the most powerful things that can happen. My name is Ali Tajani, and I am a second-year law student at the University of Windsor, and I'm also a research assistant with the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. I think one idea to improve access to justice is to reduce the cost of law school tuition. I think this would have two beneficial impacts on access to justice. First, I think the current cost of law school acts as a significant barrier for those coming from challenging socioeconomic conditions. Reducing the cost would open doors to allow members of communities who are currently underserved to better serve themselves in the quest for access to justice. Second, I think reducing the cost of tuition would allow more students to participate in career paths that involve promoting social justice or access to justice causes. Currently, if you graduate from law school and have $60,000 or more in debt, you might feel like you have no choice other than to charge $300 an hour, or no choice other than practicing in corporate commercial law, or that you might not be able to take chances testing new models of providing client services, like legal coaching or unbundled services, or even pro bono or low bono services. Tuition debt shackles new lawyers to antiquated ways of practicing law, which clearly aren't doing enough to address the access to justice gap. My name is Randy Drusen. I'm a journalist from Toronto, and I'm also a self-represented litigant, or have been in the past. My story is a very interesting story. I once brought a motion for my civil case, and the night before the motion was scheduled, opposing counsel contacted me to tell me the motion had been taken off the docket for scheduling purposes, and that it wasn't um, necessary for me to show up in court the next day. But just to be safe, because of previous experience with this council, I did show up in court. And sure enough, the motion was on the docket and opposing counsel was in the courtroom waiting to address the judge. And so that incident made it very clear to me that lawyers and even to a certain extent judges need to be held accountable for the way they treat self-represented litigants. And I think possibly even held to a greater standard in the way they treat self-represented litigants than other lawyers because we are more vulnerable. Hi, my name is Judy Gayton and I'm a self-represented litigant. Um, that case has the potential to change the law from persons with certain disabilities in some circumstances to enjoy access to legal aid on an equal basis with other groups such as accused criminals. Doing so is in keeping with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which Canada both signed and ratified. However, we are supposed to be afforded some measure of protection that simply does not exist. At a time when the rights of other disadvantaged groups are being championed and moving forward, discrimination against persons with disabilities 
remains prevalent and ingrained so much that it isn't even being spoken about as a unique problem in the legal setting. It's incumbent on Canada to support the collective rights of persons with disabilities, access to justice for the human rights in a systematically logical manner and failure to do so is a breach of our right to a remedy to the harm we suffered and should be able to access like any other injury victim. I think there needs to be a registry of both disability rights lawyers and organizations that will address cases needing to be heard in judicial review, appeal, and at the Supreme Court. Without organizing for this to happen, vulnerable persons will continue to be denied any way to get our important cases heard. With this group, which consists of two SRLs, one of whom is a journalist also, and a law student, we begin to see theme that the problems are really very systemic. And while there are specific things that could change that would make an enormous difference, unless we understand the systemic nature of the problem, we're not going to be really able to uh, confront it. So Ali's discussion of law school tuition points to a very major problem. The whole culture by which people become lawyers and then by which they practice law is reinforced by the fact that people really need to make money when they get out of law school, and that takes them away from the potential of, of working in a more social justice-oriented type of legal practice. And the, Randy talks about how really lawyers and judges need to be held accountable for uh, the behavior that goes on and the behavior they sometimes let go on. And so we have to understand what is accountability structures that exist for lawyers and judges and to what extent are those accountability structures actually run by lawyers and judges as opposed to by the general public or at least a significant way, uh, part of the general public. And that too is a very deep deeply bred into the system sort of problem. And Judy talks about disability issues. We've had laws on the books about disability rights for decades, and yet to really make them have life, people have to take those laws seriously, they have to know about them, and they have to enforce them. Uh, and implement them. And yet we find in many, many different uh, arenas that is just not what happens. And certainly in the justice system, the fact that something is a law or a regulation or a right doesn't mean it's really going to happen. So that raises a whole issue of how do we begin, uh, begin to change the culture of the uh, legal system itself. And that's something that was very prominently discussed uh, at the dialogue, I think in a very creative way. My name is Andrew Pillier. I'm an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law, Thompson Rivers University. What's one practical change that would make a real difference in access to justice? I think access to justice has to become radically political. What do I mean by that? Well, I don't think that access to justice is a crisis, although it's often described as such. I think it's more of a chronic condition. It's something that has long been with us, and we need much, much more than a few solutions to try and remedy this problem. I think we need new approaches, and those have to be approaches from outside of the legal profession. I think we need to see access to justice problems as ubiquitous, access to justice as dignity enhancing, and worth pursuing in the same way that previous generations have pursued things like universal health care. Andrew puts it all together in terms of how we need to think about change in a very important way. That it is a crisis in one sense, but it's a crisis that's been with us for a very long time. I've long been interested in how we understand conflict as a long-term event and how we help people stay with conflict, rather than just think of it as something that we can get an agreement to and it goes away. 
I think most of our important issues in the world we deal with aren't ones that we can solve completely and easily and are amenable to simple solutions. Nonetheless, what's really important is to find uh, ideas and, and, and programs and approaches that can help move the whole uh, situation forward in a more positive direction. I think Andrew puts that very well, and it ties together a lot of the great ideas that we've heard throughout this discussion, which on the one hand are very practical and tangible and related to stuff that we could start taking action on right away, but also are connected to deeply rooted institutional and cultural phenomena that we can't just assume we'll come up with a nice dialogue and a program and then it'll be fixed. And I think the important thing that the National Self-Represented Litigants Project has done is take a long-term view with a very immediate practical sensibility. And that's shown, I think, throughout the dialogue. In other news, first up in other news, the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice has published three new reports based on data from their national study on everyday legal problems and the cost of justice in Canada. As part of the national seven-year study, over 3,000 adults in Canada were asked about their experiences with civil and family justice problems. The costs, both monetary and non-monetary, of experiencing one or more civil or family justice problems. And finally, their views on the justice system. The first report presents the survey data and consists of over 200 slides. While there are a lot of takeaways, the section on views on the justice system is especially interesting. For example, 20% of respondents disagreed, either somewhat or strongly, with the statement, quote, the justice system in Canada is mostly fair, unquote. And 74% of respondents agreed, either somewhat or strongly, with the statement, quote, the legal system works better for rich people than for poor people, unquote. The second report looks at the connection between household income and one's experience with the civil or family justice system. The data is organized into three annual income groups, less than $60,000, between $60,000 and $125,000, and more than $125,000. The report indicates the rates at which each group tends to have certain types of legal issues, like those pertaining to debt, consumer problems, employment, family problems, personal injury, and others. The third report looks specifically at spending on everyday legal problems. In particular, average spending on legal problems is approximately $6,100 per year. Definitely take a look if you're interested in learning more about the cost of justice. Our second update is about a proposal before the Law Society of British Columbia to establish a new category of legal practitioners who are not lawyers, but who would be allowed to do a limited amount of legal work. Based on the consultation paper prepared by the BC government and the Law Society Ventures Working Group, the research indicates that perhaps only 15% of those facing a legal problem seek the advice of a lawyer, and as many as 70% of those facing a problem seek no help at all. Under the proposal, a family law legal services provider who would be fully trained and would be regulated by the society would be able to provide a number of legal services, including conducting client interviews, advising clients about available legal options, acting as a mediator, and preparing orders. 
In a blog post in mid-October, British Columbia Court of Appeal Chief Justice Robert Bauman chimed in, saying that while this is a controversial idea, it is worth considering given ongoing systemic problems. He encouraged input from lawyers, litigants, and members of the public. Lastly, in case you missed it, the NSRLP published a new blog post which was co-authored by Julie and an SRL and now NSRLP advisory board member, Jennifer Muller. They shared some, some thoughts on the recent dialogue event and discussed how things have changed since the original event five years ago. As always, we've provided links on our podcast website for the blog post and all the other sources we mentioned. That's it for this week of jumping off the ivory tower. 